Hello. Is, is anyone still there? Do I have any subscribers left? <laughs> Where did they go? <laughs> Hi, guys. Welcome back to uh, an episode of Soberland, the first one in about six months. Yay. Um, I'm so sorry I, if you feel abandoned. I did not mean to do that. Yeah, I'm so excited to be back and record a new episode and fill you guys in on what's been going on in my life in the last six months. Um, and today I have someone uh, very close to me that I've known my whole life because she's my sister, Kristen McCool. Hi, Kristen. Welcome. She's visiting from Texas for the weekend, and I thought it would be a great time to finally get back into recording an episode. We're definitely going to talk to Kristen about um, some mental health stuff, of course, but I feel like I should probably address the fact that I haven't <laughs> uh, been around for a while. I am alive and uh, I'm here. And I, it's not that I relapsed. I want to clarify that. A lot of people have reached out on like social media and been like, I hope you're okay. Like We haven't had an episode in a while. So that's not the case. I'm still sober. I just hit 18 months, um, like last month, I think it was. Yay. That's like something to celebrate for sure. Yeah. I mean, I wonder how <laughs> how long I'm going to like celebrate these little milestones. Obviously, like each year is like, you know, your your birthday and that's a big deal. But I'm like 18 months, 19 months, 20 months. OK, when do we stop? Do- <laughs> well, so- like when you have children, usually once they hit two, you stop doing the months. So maybe when it's 24 months, then don't count months after that's that. That's true. There's a couple different reasons why. One, I, well, I don't want to make count, credit this as the, the main one, but I did meet someone and I started a new relationship and I just was really happy with, and I, I mean, I am still really happy with the person and I just wanted to enjoy that and focus on that for a while and we did some traveling together and just really getting to know this person and grow with them. And that was, it's been like a huge focus for me recently. So that's one reason I started kind of losing momentum with the podcast even before I took this long sabbatical and I think it was like I was doing the monthly which is like barely at all but it it just kind of I don't know it got hard to do and then it became nothing at all and then it's like getting back into it is difficult it's kind of like going back to the gym after a break it's like once you get yourself there and you do it you're like oh I'm so glad I'm doing this but it's the whole build up to it and so I think there's been that part of this all. But anyways, I'm fine and well, and I'm so glad to be back. And um, there's actually been a couple really cool um, uh, and some not so cool events that have happened with my mental health. Well, one being, like I said, I met someone. I am in love and it's so great. And this person is also sober. And it's so great to have that partnership where you're on the same page and you support each other in that way. And it's just made sobriety so much easier and I'm so thankful for this person and I love them so much. I also had to get give up or rehome my dog Truman, which that was probably five or six months ago. I was he was an Australian shepherd, so it was like a really high energy dog. And it just got to be too much having this really super anxious high energy dog in a small one bedroom bedroom apartment in LA. And I started having like back problems from him from pulling on walks because he was so anxious and it just all became too much. And I kind of struggled with with him the whole time I had him. So it just came to a point where it was very clear that it was time to 
find him a home where he had more space because that was the right thing for both him and I. So he now has a new place and that was really difficult giving him up because I got him pretty soon after I got sober. So he was with me through that whole journey and really meant a lot to me. So that was a really difficult thing to go through, but it wasn't long until I got my new dog, Patsy, who is seven pounds, half a uh, toy fox terrier, half Pomeranian, and a lot easier to manage in LA where there's not a lot of room for anything. <laughs> so she doesn't take up much space, so it works out well, but I'm really thankful for her. Those are two really great things that have happened to me having these two people and things come into my life. But I've also been struggling a little bit, like navigating my anxiety. Uh, about four or five months ago, I stopped going to therapy because num- number one, for financial reasons, it was uh, just becoming too much. I had to pay out of pocket. And I felt like I wasn't really connecting with my therapist anymore. I saw her for a total of maybe nine months. And she was really there for me um, in some at some point. And then there was a time when I was going to her, like I'm having these depressive suicidal thoughts and that was like really serious and she was really there for me. But then it, I think with like meeting Eric and just kind of like life was flowing a little bit more smoother and I didn't really have a ton to bring to the table each week. And so it was kind of just like us catching up and she really didn't have much to say. And I, it was just like a $80 conversation every week. And it was just like, is this necessary? And let me just, you know, put this on hold and try to find a new therapist that's more affordable. It's been four or five months, which I didn't mean for it to go that long without a therapist. And I definitely feel the effect of that. And so it's definitely um, time. But then you run into the challenge of finding someone that's a good fit. I like, I went to go see this one woman and like, she was great and probably works for some people. But for me, she was like really intense and was like cursing and like getting in my face. And I was like, I don't, this isn't the approach that I I need right now. So yeah. And it's like, it's expensive. So it's just, it's, it's a difficult thing to, to find a new therapist. So I'm in the process of that. I think, I think that therapists can be seasonal in your life. Like you're saying with your first therapist, I mean, there was a season and a time where maybe it was a really great fit and then you move into a different place. And sometimes that's just not the right fit as much as I think long-term relationships with therapists can be wonderful and sometimes people have those, I think you just got to be sensitive to that too and recognize what you need might be different. And to your point, sometimes it's the personality of the therapist. You've got to find the right person for you. And if that particular person wasn't a fit for you, there will be somebody at yeah. this point in your life and what you want to address, who's going yeah. to be the right one. Yeah. It's just, it is definitely challenging because a lot of therapists, especially in LA, because we all need it here, it's they're not accepting new patients or clients. And then um, the ones that are, it's like, then you want to find ones that are somewhat covered under your insurance, which are very few. And and then it's like, you got to find the right personality fit. And it's just a lot. And it's each time you're paying money. It's, it's like dating. It's like a very expensive dating. Yeah. yeah. So that's, I'm dating, I'm out there <laughs> dating therapists, trying to find the right one. But I have started going to a psychiatrist um, maybe like three months ago because my anxiety was just like, was just getting to be too much. Um, you know, I've, I've really shared a lot about it on here. That was a huge reason why I would drink was to like, in a way, self-medicate. And I've had a really hard time managing the anxious thoughts and the constant panic 
So yeah, I went to a psychiatrist. I kind of, well, I shared with her my bad experience with Zoloft, which I talked about on here where I really didn't like it and I was taking it inconsistently and then actually ended up having like suicidal thoughts and just had to come down from that. It was really a scary experience. So I was like, don't want to take that. So we did Lexapro, which is another super common one. And she gave me, started me off on a really low dose, which I really felt no effect of. And then she bumped me up to a, a higher dose. I think it, it was like went from five milligrams to 10, like very minor. But when I was on that higher one, I could really feel it, felt like lightheaded, um, didn't like it. I actually ended up having a, the worst panic attack of my life while on Lexapro. Really scary where I couldn't even see. I like fell to the ground. I couldn't even see to find the woman's bathroom sign. It was like right in front of me, I, but I couldn't see. My vision was blurry. I fell to the ground. I was just sweating. It was just awful. I thought I was going to die. And so after that, I kind of associated the panic attack with Lexapro, even though it probably wasn't caused by it, but I, I don't know. But my, so I, I stopped taking that now she has me on Boost Bar, which is specifically for anxiety. Like a lot, Zoloft and Lexapro kind of work with depression and anxiety. In my opinion, really mostly depression because it's like the SSRIs. But Boost Bar is supposed to be just for anxiety. And I, I've been on that for maybe three weeks. And I, I really don't like the effect of that either. And what I'm, I'm learning and I kind of shared with you is like, I, these meds, they, they make me more anxious. It's like I can feel effects by them, but it's like misdirected where it's not resolving my, my ish, the issue that is really bothering me. It's just like a weird lightheaded kind of funny feeling. But when I take like more holistic things, like I have these drops I put under my tongue that are like have a skull cap and ashwagandha and lavender. I like feel so much better when I do those or when I take like some B complex vitamins. I, it's like those target the issue at hand. And so I'm learning for me, maybe I should take this route of a more holistic uh, treatment. And, I, and I've learned, you know, everyone is different. There's lots of people that really benefit from things like Lexapro. I have a ton of friends actually on it that it works really well for them. And if, and they've tried to come off of it and they feel a really negative effect and they need to go back on. So it's like, we're all really different. And it's really scary that you have to like, do this trial and error with these medications that impact your mood and personality and your overall health to figure out if it's a good fit or not. But it's like, that's kind of what we, where we're at with that. And so. And I think, I think it also speaks to the idea that we were talking about a little bit yesterday of transparency in this stuff. Um, being transparent with the right people. Sorry. Oh. No, you're good. Um, with discernment and obviously a really great person to be transparent with is a psychiatrist. So I think, you know, most people who are at a point where they're seeing a psychiatrist and they're trying medication and talking about that, of course, are willing to talk about that. But it's funny that I, I just know I've talked to people who have almost been hesitant to go back to their psychiatrist and say, hey, this isn't working for me. Like they're putting down their medical expertise or something, but you know your body, you yeah. know, and you know what is happening. And so you've got to be able to say, um, here's how I feel and I'm not liking it. Yeah. And a good psychiatrist is going to say, all right, well, let's keep working on that. So you just, it is, it's a trial and error, I think, for most people, unfortunately. Yeah. It, it's really scary. Every time they up the dosage, I, that's when I really feel a negative effect. And also with this whole getting on it, upping dosage, lowering dosage, coming off, it 
that's when you have those suicidal depressive thoughts because of all this like up and down that you're doing to the chemicals right. in your brain. And I've experienced that a lot lately too, but I recognize this is what it's, it's because of what I'm going through right now with these yeah. medications and it's like, don't act on this. So that's another scary effect of it. And it just makes me want to just get, I think I just have a fear of these meds and I always have. And it's just, I, I don't know. I've tried to push through it. I've tried different ones, but it just it doesn't fit well with me. So I, I don't I don't know. Well, I think it's good that you're finding some things that are working, like yeah. you said, from more of a natural holistic approach. And I think, you know, to continue to explore that while not completely, you know, giving up on the medication or just mm -hmm. like, I'm going to stop, you know, I mean, you want to do that with the guidance of your psychiatrist for sure. And I think, you know, that can also be a, a piece of why sometimes it isn't working or is... Um, uh, difficult for people is because they'll cold turkey it or they'll lower a dosage or something on their own. And so, yeah. you know, there's all that element too. But I I am, as you know, much more of a proponent of a holistic and natural mm -hmm. approach in general in life about foods and, and all those sorts of things. So I think, I think it makes a lot of sense to try that and see if it's helpful. Yeah. It's really like shitty thing to go through is like these ups and downs and all these changes. And it's been really frustrating, especially since it hasn't worked. And I really feel like it's made all of my issues worse. I, there's so many times recently where I've just been like, God, I just want to like drink because that was an easy fix to this. And I know it worked, you know, and it suppressed my thoughts and my anxiety, but it's like, I know also what that would lead to is just yeah. abusing that. And every other aspect of my life would go downhill because of it. Like maybe I wouldn't be anxious, but I would be checked out of life and yeah, no, probably, probably so, not the greatest answer. Uh, so I feel like, yeah, the cravings have kind of bit, I've seen those a little bit more than I have mm -hmm. uh, because of this. So it's just trying to be aware of it all. And like I said, get some, get a good therapist again get off these things and get on to the things that I feel like are more helpful for me. So all really scary, but I'll be okay. <laughs> yes, you will. So yeah, that's kind of an update on me. So, okay. So yeah, like I said, my sister is here visiting and should we talk about us? I guess a, sure. a interesting thing about us is we have a 20 year age gap so thank you so much for pointing that out. No, well, <laughs> I've always thought that you secretly are my mom I know. and you just, you know, were young when you had me and you just didn't feel ready to raise a young girl. It so makes you, total sense, you passed right? me on to our mother and she raised me. Yep. Well, <laughs> as much as that sounds like a really great like, story, like a Hallmark movie, a Hallmark movie. Oh, that's another run. thing. I've been wa I've been binge watching Hallmark Christmas movies, but now the holidays are over, so Can't do that trying to find a new hobby. Okay, but yeah, so I know that's not true, but I've always yeah. in the back of my mind have been like, what if? I, I have some friends that can vouch for the fact I was not pregnant when I was twenty. So yeah, I guess like the photos of you would have been a little. You little, would have been showing. Thing. Yeah. Okay. That's, there we go. We figured it out. Um, but yeah, so you and I have the same mom, but we have different dads. Mm -hmm. Not that I've ever, that's ever in, impacted our relationship or anything like that, but that are, there's a difference there. Um, and, oh, you were a teacher. 
I've at learned. my high school. You and I think I actually took a class with you. Yeah, you took psychology with me, didn't you? Yeah, so something. One of them. I, I thought it was speech. Oh, I don't know. Oh. Okay, could be. Every class <laughs> at my school was a Bible class in my mind because yeah, I went to a Christian no, school. I actually think you were in my sociology class. That's what oh. I think you took. So that was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And I was the girls' guidance counselor for one of the years that you were there. And so, yeah, it was it was kind of fun to be at the same school together. And my kids were there at the same time. So. Yeah, yeah, it was a family affair. All of us. <laughs> Hanging out at Calvary. Yeah. And you also would teach like uh, speech and debate and theater Mm -hmm. and all that stuff. I did. Which, by the way, I remember auditioning for a play in high school and not getting a really great part. So. So sorry. I, you know, now I live in LA, I could have been a famous actress if you had given me a leading role in the high school musical. Yes. But let's not forget that when you were eight, I put you in Fiddler on the Roof. And so that was like an amazing opportunity That's true. for you to break out. With Josh Gad, who's now a very famous actor. That's right. So uh, yeah, I could put that on my resume now. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. But so yeah. Villager. <laughs> I played Villager. My one and only <laughs> acting role. You have an interest in mental health and you kind of have for uh, most of your life. You, I know you studied marriage and family counseling in college and you've used that to counsel <laughs> and yes. marriage and families and you've taught psychology and sociology at schools. So I'm just curious why you um, were interested in that. Yeah, um, I just had always loved kind of trying to figure out how people worked and ticked and all, all that sort of stereotypical stuff you hear. And I was, I think, the go-to friend for a lot of my friends with all their drama and problems to um, talk to. And I think people always perceived me as very um, kind of unemotional, but in a good way, like able to handle, you know, trauma and drama and and give, quote, good advice, which is not what you do in counseling. But, you know, when I was younger, I thought, oh, this is cool. And then when I was a junior in high school, I took um, psychology and I had an amazing teacher. She was just one of those people that inspired and um, truly gave me this, like, aha moment of this is probably what I should be doing. And she was older. It was actually the year before she retired. Another fun fact is that this teacher actually taught our mom. She was her psychology teacher. Was she 100 years old? uh, She was... About to retire. Let's just say she was a little up there. And I think when mom had her, she was in her first years. But we uh, actually both had the same teacher for psychology, which is kind of wow. Because yeah. we went to the same high school. Also funny. So, yeah. So she, her name was Miss Spongin, and I just loved her. And after that class, I felt like that was what I would, I would go on to do. And so when I went to college, that was my major. And then got out of college and decided to get my master's in family therapy and um, planned to become a therapist and really, you know, kind of do it as a full-time thing. And it, my life didn't end up evolving in that way. But as you said, I've definitely used it and, um, it's been a part of everything that I've done. So why, like, why did you not pursue being like a therapist? Really? It was kind of where I was at in life. So when I, when I graduated with my master's, I had taken, you know, a few years to get my master's. So it wasn't like right after college that I finished. Um, I think I was, 
like in my late 20s. And so um, I just enjoyed the job I was doing. I was teaching and I was coaching speech and debate and doing drama and choreographing and I just enjoyed it. And also I had just had Jackson or adopted Jackson, Mm -hmm. my first child. And um, just being a mom and having already a job I loved. And then the alternative is after you, you know, finish your master's in family therapy, you do have to get a certain number of hours to become licensed so you can practice. And while you're getting licensure, you don't really get paid very much. In fact, you have to pay to be supervised. So I was kind of like, I could stop making any money and go do all this and be intense while I have a brand new baby, or I could wait. And so I kind of just ended up postponing it, which... I see. Dragged on. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I feel like my whole life you've been like really level-headed and you've always like approached, given like really like reasonable, logical, great advice. Mm. And I've never seen you like really heated or just you, you like, I guess, what is that? You have like a, like you're very level-headed. Yeah, hopefully it's not like detached or anything really weird. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I am. I am level-headed. Yeah, I, I you just manage good. emotions like at least from the outside. Who knows yeah. what's going on inside? inside there's a whole nother now. Um, and and I will say that as I've gotten older, I've actually learned through my own um, exploration of of things for myself and 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 going to therapist myself because I've always been a big proponent of doing that. Even as somebody in counseling, um, I've learned that some of my level-headedness or really almost detachment has come from some unhealthy things in my own life and upbringing. And um, so I've, I've learned to become more in touch with my emotions and, and realize that that actually is a good thing. You don't really want to go too extreme either way. I right. Think, so. Yeah, that's true. You don't want to like have a, like an instant reaction to everything. Yeah. And, but then all at the same time you want to show some emotion. I get that. Yeah. I know addiction has been a theme in your life, not for you personally, but to a lot of people that are very close to you. One mm-hmm. being your dad, which I didn't know cause I was too young yeah. um, when he was around, but would you mind sharing like what his struggle was and mm-hmm. how that impacted you? Yeah. Um, so my dad, um, when he was pretty young, um, I think like 21 or 22, he had a, a, a bad accident and broke some vertebrae in his back and started down the path of, you know, pain medication that was needed. And as a lot of people end up, you know, having happened when they do that and end up finding themselves addicted. And, and so that was a part of the struggle for him. Um, he also, you know, there's some other factors. He had asthma growing up really badly. So he was on a lot of medication and and kind of back at a time where they gave you some things like they would give adrenaline, um, which they don't do anymore. And so I think there were some things in just in his biological systemic system that were kind of honestly tweaked and messed up in a way. And then he stepped into, you know, pain medication at a pretty early age in his adulthood. Um, He was also a police officer for a lot of time. So, you know, sometimes when you are in that world, you're exposed to and around um, illegal drugs. And I think, you know, he had exposure to that because of his job. He worked in South Florida and there was a lot of legal drug activity in that area, still is. So I just think there were lots of factors for him. It wasn't alcohol. It was always um, prescription pain medication. I think there was some, you know, illegal drug stuff going on there too for a time, but mostly it was prescription pain medication that he struggled with. Did you ever see him like using? Yeah, I definitely always saw my dad, um, even from the time I was pretty young, taking pain medication. And I just kind of had a basic understanding that he, you know, had back pain and that's why he did. But um, I, I didn't, 
you know, have to be too old to start to realize that like, wait, this really affects how he behaves and kind of put the two together. So, yeah. So like, how did that affect his behavior and like relationship with you? Um, you know, I saw a lot of, um, just kind of erratic behavior from him, even when I was young, again, knowing that he just seemed to be slurring his speech or, you know, falling asleep early. Um, there was a lot of volatility in his relationship with our mom. Um, so, you know, a lot of arguing and yelling. Um, and so I just, yeah, I started to, I think, I can remember being like seven or eight and kind of recognizing that my dad doesn't act like other dads. Mm. So that's hard for a seven or eight year old to realize because your dad's kind of like your hero. Were there times where he like didn't show up to things when you were, Oh (laughs) Uh, yeah. So, so, um, my dad and our mom, um, got divorced, I believe when I was seven. Okay. And he, um, moved away for a period of time, lived out of state. Um, so I saw him sporadically and then they actually remarried when I was 11 to each other, which people are always fascinated by this. Um, and it's like a kid's dream, like a parent trap dream. I was at, I was at their second wedding and I was like the bridesmaid and you know, like really it was, it was actually very wonderful in a lot of ways, but, um, you know, he was dealing with his addiction at that time. And I know mom, you know, was really hopeful that that would be something that would translate into a change in, in uh, their relationship. Um, but it didn't. And they ended up getting divorced again when I was 14. Um, they had our brothers <laughs> during yeah. the time they had remarried. So obviously that was awesome. But um, yeah, I think, you know, I saw, I, I saw a lot of, again, erratic behavior. And when they were divorced, particularly the first time when I was younger, he would just not show up to get me. You know, mm. there would be that kind of stuff. And then when he moved away, obviously I didn't see him as much and I would go visit him, but um, he lived in Colorado for a season. And so, yeah, there was just a lot of in- inconsistency in the way that he was a parent at that time, for sure. Yeah. I, yeah. I feel like for a lot of people, they would just sometimes I don't give up on that parent or that relationship, but I mm. kind of remember you always still being there no matter what and always having a relationship with him until yeah. the, the end you just like was that just important to you to not give up on your your dad or yeah I mean I, and I will say you know like so many people who struggle with addiction I, I mean my dad was a great person and then there were a lot of amazing qualities as a dad you know some of the things I, I can say that I remember or that I know were good elements that helped me to want to hold on to a relationship Mm -hmm. with him is, I mean, he always, he was just one of those people who always would tell me how much he loved me, made me feel so good about myself. He was so affirming, you know, you are amazing, Kristen, you're so good at that. He just was that kind of person. Um, He was kind of a bigger than life personality, life of the party, hugged and kissed me all the time, never hung up the phone without saying I love you. Like a lot of things that as a girl, we know we need from our dads, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of affirmation my dad was amazing at. So there was a lot of good, even with the bad. Yeah. Um, And and when he was struggling, there were times that, um, you know, he would he would come and apologize to me and he would, you know, um, do the I'm so sorry, things are going to change sort of thing that yeah. ultimately didn't ever really result in. That was complete my change. next question. Did he ever make attempts to, for sobriety? Yes. For like, sure. He was in rehab, I know, several times. Uh, um uh, you know, our family um, had a very strong church. And so I know through the church that like our grandparents were a part of and our, and our mom was a part of, um, they had helped get him into some great rehab um, facilities. And he did some, you know, fairly long-term in inpatient stuff. Um, so 
yeah, there was always the hope that that things would change, but he still, you know, really struggled. And I would say like one of the one of the lowest points I remember um, for me and I think for him was there was a point, um, I think I was probably about 10 or 11, that he um, he was really high. I knew he was really high. Um, we were all living together and we went out to take a walk. He said, come take a walk with me. And we were walking around and he was just very distraught and crying and shared with me that he just, he didn't think that he could go on living. And, um, you know, he knew he had messed things up so badly. And, you know, he was a cop and he had a gun and, um, and he had the gun with him. And I remember like, I just remember consciously thinking, I've got to talk my dad out of killing himself and wow. like having this conversation with him about how he had so much to live for. And I was so fearful that he was going to actually That's terrifying. do something. So, you know, those are the kinds of things that um, obviously are impactful and yeah. shape who you become. So, Wow. That is, that is so scary. And then I've honestly kind of have always been a little unclear on his passing. Was it an overdose? Mm-hmm. So he had had, um, because he'd had all these back problems, he had constant surgeries and things. He went in to have a surgery um, kind of on like some upper vertebrae, like close to his neck. Um, He came out of the surgery fine. At the time, he was living by himself. And he um, went home from the hospital. Like essentially, they didn't want to discharge him unless he was going into the care of somebody. And he, he wasn't living with anybody. So he just walked out of the hospital, which he would typically, you know, do do whatever he wanted with those sorts of things. So he just drove himself home. Um, He talked to me and had told me, you know, I'm at home. And um, I said, well, you know, I'm going to check on you tomorrow. And they had given him um, his his discharge medication, I guess, before he had left, thinking he'd have somebody watching him. And so long story short, I, what they think in doing the autopsy is that he um, just took more of the medication than he should have because he had a lot of things in his system already from the hospital, like, Mm. you know, things that they give you when you're, you know, in there and he wasn't really aware of that. Uh. So I think he took his normal amount and he had a very high tolerance, obviously. Um, And so he took a combination of some things they had given him for pain and muscle relaxation and it just stopped his heart. So um, they determined it, you know, they don't think it was a suicide. I don't think it was either. It was really like an accidental overdose, but not in the sense of like, I'm taking too much medication to get high. He was actually needing it. Yeah, yeah. Recovery. But I mean, I had had a conversation with him where he knew I was like coming over to see him the next morning Mm -hmm. and everything was fine. His spirits were fine. So I think that's probably what happened. Was it a huge shock to you when you heard this because you knew he had struggled with, oh, you weren't, okay. Yeah, just because even though, I I wouldn't say he was at some amazing point in his life, he was still struggling and, you know, was living by himself and just not in the greatest place with jobs and all of that. His spirits were actually pretty good and he was very hopeful that this surgery would help get him out of some Mm -hmm. of the pain he was in. So it was a shock, um, again, because I had just talked to him and I called him the next morning to say, hey, I'm coming over and he didn't answer, he didn't answer. I got worried um, and was just about to essentially either get in the car or, or call the police and I called again and a police officer answered at his place and said, I'm so sorry. You know, oh, wow. We just came in and found your dad. Because he was staying at like a, you know, it was almost like a long-term hotel place. So I think the owners there were worried about him and checked on him and found him. So Yeah, that's, it's so difficult because so many of these addictions to prescription meds begin with an injury. Yeah. And it's like these people are in legit a lot of pain. Absolutely. And you, it's like unbearable. And you it's like you want to help them, but these 
medications are extremely addictive. So what do you, it's like, what do you do? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a struggle so many people have who have an injury or, or something like that, that is a legitimate pain issue. I mean, I watched my dad my whole life, just like you could see it on his face. He was in so much pain all wow. the time. He would lay on the floor and put his legs up, do all the things that Aww. people with back pain. And he had like seven herniated discs. Like it was definitely legit, but yeah, the question becomes, you know, how do you deal with that in a healthy way? And it was hard. Yeah. And I know a lot of times people say that they this is like a hereditary condition. It's genetic. I feel like you and our brothers have never, as far as I know, struggled with any kind of addiction. Mm-hmm. So is it because you've, you've seen the negative mm-hmm. effect of it? Yeah, I think I, I think all three of us felt that sort of, gosh, we would never want to go down that path and the, the risk of is there a... a a, a sort of um, genetic predisposition to it, and I do, I do believe in that for sure. And I would say, even with my dad's situation, I do think he had a, a predisposition towards addictive behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know Matt and Josh have even been more concerned about that maybe than I have as men. Um, but we all had that awareness, and it yeah. was part of why you know, like I have drank in my life and drank to excess, and you know, wouldn't say that I've never struggled with drinking um, in an unhealthy way. But I always, in my mind, it was uh, the drug piece of it. I'm like, I'll never ever do anything. And yeah, so- I think it actually that impacted me as well like because I was really young when this all happened but I remember your dad coming to visit to pick up Josh and Matt our brothers and seeing him and like being so curious about him and then hearing about his passing and I knew that he struggled with drugs and so I think that actually instilled a fear in me with drugs so that's that was really nothing or that was something that I didn't ever really touch Mm -hmm. I remember I had like surgery on my elbow and they gave me a bunch of meds and I like I think I took it once and then flushed it because I knew hearing stories about that that what it can do to you and so yeah I think witnessing that can definitely mm-hmm. ins- give you some sort of fear against it yeah which is good it's a good fear I mean but yeah it's powerful stuff <laughs> yeah how has that emotionally impacted your life oh um, <laughs> <laughs> well yeah you know I think having a parent who has an addiction problem um, of course is going to affect aspects of your life. And, you know, for me, I, um, I think we, you were, and I were talking about this a little bit the other day. I, I've discovered in my own explore, exploration of, you know, some of my own choices and, and things about myself that I wanted to understand more that, um, you know, my life was characterized by a lot of chaos. And um, you can look at it by the fact that I, I think I went to like, I don't know, something like 10 different elementary schools because we just moved a lot Mm. in part because my dad, you know, was struggling and so he would change jobs and we would move and different things. Um, So things were always very chaotic for me growing up, you know, with not only living in different locations in different schools, but just the drama and trauma with my parents, you know, Mm -hmm. and being together and being apart. And and I know you lived with our grandparents for a period as well too. um, Our grandparents, you know, for a long time, time but it was always really again very sporadic we mm-hmm. lived with them for six months we'd move out and be in a place for a while then we come back but like if I think about like what's my home um the, the home that I grew up in when I visualize it it's our grandparents house because I never had anything else that was like a home that I grew up in so um I think just the chaos and the constant change um does different things to different people and for me I did have kind of a craving for 
um, normalcy and things being consistent. I remember feeling that and thinking about that as I got older, but yet one of the things I discovered in becoming an adult and actually living my life that became an unhealthy thing for me was that as much as I craved that, chaos still felt normal. And sometimes Mm. I would put myself in a situation where I could have more consistency and normalcy, and then I'd start to get antsy about it because it felt so uncomfortable. Did you feel like you didn't deserve normalcy or just Mm. didn't feel normal (laughs) to be normal? Yeah, I think it was both. Um, I know I carried a lot of shame, and that's something I've had to work through as an adult too, the shame of um, something that wasn't my shame to bear, which was my dad, and oh, it was embarrassing. People knew, people knew Mm. in our lives, people knew at our church that my dad, you know, had an addiction problem. I couldn't have friends over sometimes. You know, there's a lot of things that um, you grow up not even realizing are tied to this idea of shame and then you begin to carry it yourself. And so I think I had shame and I think I just, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really think that I deserved it. And also just, again, it just felt really uncomfortable. Yeah. So do you still feel that way or have you been able to work through that and realize that you do deserve yeah, normalcy? Yeah, I, I have worked through it. It's taken me a long time. Like we said, I'm like 51 years old. And so I would say, you know, maybe even just really in the last five years of my life, I've really come to understand the depth of how that ran for me and how it has affected choices I've made um, and how it's affected me as a parent you know, as a friend, as a counselor, you know, all those things it's tied into. So, yeah. Has there, so has there been, I know the answer to this. I'm acting like I don't know you, but has there been, (laughs) has there been addiction in another relationship in your life? Yes. um, Besides me. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You're, you're a newer one. Yeah. Um, but yes, I was married. Um, and, uh, he and I are divorced now. Um, I'm remarried and and have a, a wonderful husband. Um, but, uh, the father of my children um, did struggle with addiction, and I didn't really know that when um, I married him. <laughs> Sadly, we just had not really dated or known each other for a long, long time. And like a lot of addicts, you know, he kind of hid some of that, and and I think some of it developed and, and became more of an issue as we were married. We were married for for eighteen years, so um, yes, he he definitely had a struggle, and his struggle was you know, alcohol mm-hmm. more than anything else. So I surprisingly, as somebody who grew up in a household that that dealt with addiction, you would think I'd be more aware of the signs, mm-hmm. but, you know, sometimes you're too close to a situation and you want to see what you want to see and, and people can be very good at hiding things. And I think all of those factors played in with me not fully realizing how deep that struggle went for him. Was it, was there ever a time, if you're like totally honest, where you saw things that made you question and like that there was alcohol being abused by him, but you just ignored it because you didn't want to go down that path that you had already been down before with. Mm, For sure. Yeah. I I can look back and know that there were times where I, I know I would, I would do that too. Like, I don't want to deal with this again. Like I'm just going to pretend like this isn't here. Like, yeah. And, you know, when you want to really avoid that, which anybody would, right, but maybe having had the background too, I really wanted to avoid it. You want to believe what people tell you. Yeah, and you so want to believe the best in people, I, especially know. when you love them. And and it wasn't like I was completely unaware, you know, for the entire marriage or something. I mean, there was a point a few years into our marriage where I realized it was more of a struggle for him than I had known. And, um, you know, he definitely walked down the path of, of trying to deal with that and going to, you know, rehab and therapy and all those sorts of things. But, um, he was 
different you know his personality is different and his struggle is different and that it was he was a much more functional person like my dad um would lose jobs and he would be you know like it was super obvious to everybody around him when he was really in a bad place um there was some functionality where he was you know using pills and things and was still going to work or whatever but for him it was much more kind of like up and down in my marriage with my spouse um he was able to kind of like function day to day for longer periods of time. So that wasn't something I was as familiar with. It was more like that functional alcoholic. So uh, again, it was easier, I think, for him to hide that from me because it wasn't something that I recognized. As yeah. Much. And, you know, they, a lot of addicts, whether it's drugs or alcohol, have similar personality traits. Mm-hmm. You know, like a lot of us struggle with depression or anxiety or things like that. Um, do you think that you like unintentionally were drawn to maybe some qualities like that in your first husband without knowing because it may be like, I don't know if this is like getting too. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good question. Um, yes. Cause you and said you didn't at the beginning, you didn't ha- you didn't have any idea. So it's right. It's not like you intentionally jumped into this, but maybe unintentionally. Yeah. 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 No, I think he was, um, and, and he is, a, you know, a really, um, charming person, great communicator, um, yeah, kind of a, a larger-than-life personality, I guess, to describe it that way. I think that, yeah, those personality traits my dad had. And um, so, yeah, I do think that there's some things that I was probably drawn to that aren't bad things. But, yeah, yeah. you know, like sometimes we are attracted to, I mean, they always say, what, you marry your father or whatever, you know, like, <laughs> that women are looking for. And, and so some of the really good characteristics of my dad I think I was attracted to and they weren't bad things right yeah so um but I do I do think that yes some aspects of um of my ex-husband's personality were similar in an unhealthy way and I just didn't fully recognize it at the time Mm -hmm. well and and so let me just clarify I'll go back um so my ex-husband who we're talking about who um, has struggled with some addiction, he's not my first husband. I was married before mm-hmm. that. And I and I want to make that point, not just to embarrass myself, but also... <laughs> it's not embarrassing. <laughs> well, we're in LA. You know. That's normal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, not something I ever imagined for myself, right? You know, I think when you're a product of divorce too, you always tell yourself, I will never. And, you know, so unfortunately. But I do want to point that out to say that my first husband was actually kind of the opposite uh, um, in in some of the unhealthy ways of like my dad. Well, he was a pastor. Was Let's a pastor. start with that. <laughs> and he was, you were a pastor's um, wife. I was or, pastor's wife. A and, little bit. Um, and you know, I was really young when we got married. And so there were some other factors, but I think that his normalcy quote unquote, and just came from a very consistent home. His parents had been married, you know, to each other for many years. He just, you know, had grown up in this really consistent, home life environment and I was super attracted to that in a lot of ways of course in Mm -hmm. part because of what I grew up with but also it was one of the factors in the demise of our marriage which was like 98 let's say 99.5 percent my fault and my doing honestly um because it felt very unfamiliar so Mm -hmm. when we actually got married and began to live our lives together as these two you know young people who were very much in love the 
the lack of chaos, I, I think within like the first year, I started to kind of look around and go, okay, what's going on? Mm. Like, and, and so that is, you know, kind of to answer one of your questions earlier of like, how did, how did my dad and, and what he dealt with affect my life? I think that that is one of the primary ways I ended up choosing to leave that marriage when um, I had really a great guy who loved me very much and fought very hard for the marriage. And I couldn't even really tell you why at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and now I still, I have a little better sense of, you know, some of my own stuff as to why, but at the time when people were like, what's wrong, I didn't really have an answer because yeah. who, who's going to say, because the problem is that nothing is wrong. Right. That's, feels, that's the issue. Normal. It's yeah. Like, okay. <laughs> um, that's a horrible thing. Oh my gosh. You know, so it was really, yeah. it was unfortunate that I wasn't as aware, um, as I am now as to some of my own stuff that I needed to deal with. Yeah. Like the stability was scary. Yeah. So your second ex-husband that, um, struggles with the alcoholism, he's still using, correct? Um, you know, I don't live with him anymore. Oh, that's true. You don't. Um, so I don't even, I don't really want to speak to that, okay. but I know that, um, you know, he's, he's struggling. He's also had a lot of physical issues, mm -hmm. like kind of like my dad, right? Like legit yeah. physical things. And so he is struggling with those predominantly at this point, unfortunately. So I don't know for sure how he's handling yeah. it, but I guess I just wanted to highlight like the negative effects of long-term alcoholism because yeah. eventually it inevitably led to him losing his wife and mm -hmm. his family. Yeah. And that's so sad. Yeah. I mean, he has a tough relationship with um, our two older kids, uh, particularly our daughter. Um, you know, she um, has really struggled with, you know, the feelings of um, frustration as to how he could continue and how his behavior um, has not just affected our family, but affected her, you know, trust issues for sure. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I, I do, I, 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 I feel really badly for him in knowing that he knows and is aware that his choices have, you know, affected his life in a, in a really long-term way. Not that anything is ever too far right. gone, right? And, you know, and, and he and I have actually a really good relationship now. I mean, we still co-parent, we have a 12 year old together. Um, and so, um, you know, I think he's dealing with some of this as best he can at this point in his life. And I want to continue to be an encouragement to him. Yeah. Even though we're no longer married. I want the very best for him, not just because we have children together, but because I care about him. And yeah. I know that God has an amazing plan for his life. Like I firmly believe that. And I would love to see that be able to come to fruition for him. Yeah. And I didn't mean long-term. Here's an example of long-term alcoholism. Like your life is over. Like yeah. there, you can, you always have the option to change. Absolutely. And I, but I, my point is just the longer that you wait to change, the more damage that you're going to do. Yeah. And you're going to have to, try to fix when you do. Yeah. And I change. think that's a great point for people who, you know, might be dealing with something and it hasn't been going on for too long and they can tell themselves that live, like, you know, I can stop at any right. point. I mean, the classic stuff that people tell themselves and, you know, it's, uh, well, this is the time in my life to explore this stuff, whatever yeah. lie you tell yourself. Um, not to say that that can't be true for a certain person, but I would say that more likely you find the person who is looking back 20 or 30 years later going, I wish I hadn't believed that lie. Yeah. I mean, so. I, I have a decade there where I, that I feel like I lost because of yeah. drinking and that's a good amount of time, but like, God, what would have happened if I just kept on for like another right. two or three decades? Like, 
I, that just, that scared, that literally gives me chills, like to think about just me missing out on that much more of my life. But yeah, so that's, that's the only point I was making yeah. is the longer that you wait to get sober, the longer you're going to continue to miss out. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there's choices I'm sure that you made during that time that you look back and regret. I mean, you know, even bigger choices, like maybe you took a certain job because you, whatever, you know, weren't, Mm -hmm. weren't thinking about what's the best for me or, you know, certain things in relationships or whatnot. But, um, I think for me, it was like college early career. So it was me not having the clarity to realize what it is that I really like to do or what I really want to do or what, like what I'm passionate about. Mm -hmm. But it was just like, oh, I'm supposed to go to college. I'm supposed to get this degree and I'm supposed to get an office job. So let me just do this. It was just like getting it done without actually figuring out what it is that I really, yeah. really wanted because I had no clarity to find that out. But yeah. No, I think that, and, and that's super impactful. And like you said, you know, you feel like you're at a point in life now where you're exploring those things even mm-hmm. more and it's awesome, but you kind of wish you were doing it at maybe 25. Yeah. But thank goodness that you you know, you didn't, choose a spouse you didn't that's start true having children like think about the things that if you were still really struggling and, and moving into that next phase that is true addiction that it would affect really long-term things and so. more people and more people because i yeah. most of my regrets impacted me directly mm-hmm. man i miss this podcast <laughs> i miss talking about this yeah, stuff you should be doing this again you know i forgot i forgot how to set up the podcast it took me like a half hour and it's because i plugged in the headphones in the wrong outlet that's how long it's been but well and i just think that you know maybe what is going to happen is just as you're growing and shifting and morphing in your journey um of sobriety your podcast is going to do the same thing Mm -hmm. and so it may just be that there's going to be i don't know different things you focus on different approaches that you take different people you have on who knows yeah well i mean like a year ago i i shouldn't i wasn't and i shouldn't have been thinking what's my actual calling and career next move like i was just like how do i get through today without a drink (laughs) how do i go to sleep without being terrified like so it's yeah it's gradual and as you grow in sobriety you grow in a better relationship with yourself and you continue Mm -hmm. i mean like i'm seeing that progress in my life where now I've gotten sober. I have a healthy relationship with myself. I now have a partner that I love and that loves me back. And I, you know, that's something I I wanted for so many years in drinking and I was drinking to find it. And it's like, oh, I found it in sobriety. (laughs) Like amazing. Yeah. So (laughs) yeah, it it is, things are happening in stages and it's going to only get better. And I think, you know, you're, your journey now and some of the things you're able to focus on and think about, like you said, there'll be different people that will be helped by that, but also, I just think for a person who's listening to your podcast who maybe is in those first stages like you were in those first months of like, God, how do I get through today? Where you're at now is going to be such an encouragement, you know, Mm -hmm. like, okay, I could be there, you know, like sometimes you need that goal of seeing somebody who's walked through the journey and seeing how they've succeeded to just get you through that next day and something you're struggling with. So, yeah, you know, you may just have also a different ability to help people in a different way now. Yeah. So, Going, I want to kind of wrap up your story, though. How are you feeling about life now? And um, and a, a, as it relates to, you know, my understanding of addiction and the experiences that I've had um, and how it's morphed me, I think, like I said, the last five years have been just 
incredible for me. I have gotten to a point, I mean, I've been in therapy on and off for a lot of my adult life because I'm a firm believer that everybody should be <laughs> seeing a therapist. And, yeah. um, you know, I believe in that for individuals. I think for couples, um, it's hugely important um, to be able to talk about your stuff. So it's not that I haven't explored some of these things and like my past and my dad and how it's affected me, but I've just come into a place where I've understood it on a different level and like I was saying earlier about connectivity with my own emotions, I think that's been a big part of it. Just, you know, for me, a part of the journey and dealing with addiction as it's affected me in my life has to do with my own faith belief. And, you know, I have a strong relationship with God. And so that has grown and, um, God has just shown me some things, um, in these recent years about, how he sees me and what my identity is and that my identity is not caught up in shame and it's not caught up in, you know, who my dad was or who anybody else in my life was and, and not even my own mistakes because I could sit and feel shame about my own choices, right? And could beat myself up. Um, but for me, you know, God has said, I love you just like you are. I don't want to leave you where you are. I want to help you get to a better place with certain things, but I love you just like you are. And there's nothing you could do to make me love you more. And that's been really empowering and freeing for me. And so I kind of walk not in shame anymore about anything that I've done. Um, it doesn't mean I walk around and broadcast it to everybody, right? Like we want to be discerning sometimes about who we share certain private things with, but um, you know, even sharing in this format, it's like, I want to help people mm -hmm. as much as I can. And that's been part of how, um, I can use the stuff from my past to, um, help other people and help myself. And so I think that I recognize that, um, some of the struggles that I had, like with consistency and chaos and all of that, at the end of the day, I have to make the decision to live the life that I want to live and that I'm called to. And, that I don't need to let other people's stuff um, limit me, hold me back, um, shape me anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just able to step more into a place of really being empowered to be the person that I am, but also strive to make the changes I want to make in my own life. And when I see something like, let's say, for example, in my marriage now, when I see myself, um, uh, let's say, my husband and I get in, in a fight, for example, I can feel in my gut that feeling that when we things get more heated and he maybe raises his voice a little bit, I feel in my gut the same feeling that I had when I was a kid when my parents would fight and mm. there'd be chaos. And what I used to do um, for my adult life is what I did as a kid, which was I would just retreat into myself, go into the other room, shut the door and just like try to ride it out. And I find myself doing that in relationships. I've done it my whole life. Like, I'm just going to stay calm and <laughs> be the, you know, the really like steady person. And okay, well, let's be logical or I'll walk away. And now what I do when I feel that feeling is I go, wait a minute, what's the healthy thing for me to do in this relationship with this person who's got his personality and his things too? And I find myself more empowered to be able to speak up and say, this is what I need. Whoa, time out. Let me tell you how I feel in this situation mm -hmm. and talk through it in the moment instead of doing doing the thing that I've now become aware has to do with how I grew up and mm. the, the way that I dealt with the things in my life at the time. And I just think we all have to be more aware of that sort of stuff. Yeah. So it takes some time to figure it out. Yeah. Don't uh, give up if you're <laughs> under 50 or even if you're over, over 50, it's like, it's never too late. I, I, I think that's a lie that, you know, you can tell yourself or let 
people tell you or let circumstances tell you that like, oh, you know, it's too late to fix that. It's never too late. Yeah. Didn't I say like yesterday, like, it's too late for me to make a career change. And oh you're like, gosh. if it's too late for you, it's way too late for me. And it's not too late for me. And I was like, yeah. okay, you're right. I think it's a great lesson of, you know, just the advice or the the things that you truly believe and say to your friends about things that they say that are like, you know, putting themselves down or diminishing themselves tell those things to yourself. Yeah. Because I find when I listen to myself, talk to my friends about things and then I walk away and go, Kristen, could that apply to you? Yeah. It's like, ding, ding, ding. Yeah. I, I I don't know why it is. I'm like, oh, but my life didn't work out in the order it was supposed to. Like I didn't study this in school and then I didn't move to New York and get that internship at this place. <laughs> and da, 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 da. It was like, it's like, it's okay. It doesn't have to be yeah. on that timeline. It can be whatever timeline it needs to be. I mean, I just think like even just from a career standpoint, things are so different than they used to be, right? People used to feel that way at 30. Like if they aren't on the career path, oh my gosh, it's too late and I have to keep doing this thing. Now we look at people who at 50 pick up and go back to school and get a completely different degree and yeah. start a whole nother career because we realize we can do that and we're not limited and people live longer. And I mean, there's just all sorts of reasons. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, the idea that it's too late is just such a lie. And I was actually telling this to, I was kind of talking about this concept to Caden the other day. We were talking who's about, your he's son. 12, yeah. yes, my 12 year old. And I was telling him the cor- this, the, cor- the story of Colonel Sanders, you the know, fried, the chicken. fried chicken guy. Okay, He started Kentucky Fried Chicken at 65. And he had like this miserable life before. He failed at every job. He was divorced. He was estranged from his kids. Like kind of had a really tough life. And at 65, he retired and he like hard had hardly any money and apparently he for whatever reason decided well you know what the one thing I enjoy is I'm good at cooking chicken I have a pretty good (laughs) recipe (laughs) and he went out and he like started selling it and like lo and behold Kentucky Fried Chicken if Colonel Sanders can do it then you can do it my gosh darn it we can do it so (laughs) (laughs) okay He's my new role model. There you go. I'm um, I'm excited to show you around LA it's your first time here right? Yes. And tomorrow's the Golden Globes, which this will probably, I probably won't post this until after Sunday because we're hanging out, but (laughs) we're going to make an attempt to go to the Beverly Hilton where it's being filmed and try to see something, see someone. We'll like wave to people even if they don't see us. Wave to like the valet guys Mm -hmm. or something. And from afar, maybe see some famous person. But who knows? Maybe like Leo or Brad will see us Mm -hmm. and they'll be like, you come in with me that's right and then i'll be like you'll be like i'm only going in if my sister can come in and then yes. you'll bring me with me so we should dress appropriately we should Maybe wear we gowns. Should wear gowns <laughs> just in case like stilettos yeah yep. that's, that would be really sad and pathetic if we were there <laughs> in the parking lot like <laughs> no we're important people but yeah, hopefully we'll have a cool story to share yeah. from that. I would love to see a famous person putting, while here. You never putting know. that out into the universe. Yeah, you you probably will. Okay. All right. Good. Well, thank you for for uh, for being on the podcast Absolutely. and sharing I'm glad that I, story. I got to. I got to learn a lot about you that I didn't Good. know. So great. Okay. All right. Well, I will be back with more episodes. I don't know how often, but. Yes, she will. I got to figure out remote podcasting because I have a lot of people that are out of state that I really would like to have on and um, Mm -hmm. I'm working on that. It's not hard. It's just, once again, I have to sit down and do it and it's just like, but I'll sit down and figure that out and then we'll get some more guests on here. All right. Thank you guys for listening and we'll talk talk soon. (laughs) Bye.